You're listening to Country Music Success Stories featuring Music City mentor J.C. Don Valeris. Now, here's your host, Candy O'Terry. J.C. and I are on the road again. It's a beautiful day in Tennessee, and we're making our way to the historic town of Old Hickory and the home of a true country music legend whose name just happens to be Whispering Bill Anderson. Now, here's a guy whose musical experience includes everything from writing his first number one song in college to singing, to radio, television, 60 years as a member of the Grand Ole Opry, unbelievable solo songwriting success, and even reinvention as a co-writer of number one songs later in his career. And you know lots of them. Let's just say Whispering Bill Anderson is a fountain of knowledge. Find something you like doing so much you do it for nothing, and then learn to do it so well that they'll pay you, and you've got it made. And that's really the way I feel about performing. Bill met us at the door with a warm hug and a hello, and he led us into his dining room where there was this huge table. You could tell it was just perfect for big family gatherings. And outside the big picture window was a stream and a little bridge and giant old oak trees and green, green grass. Of course, I had to ask him how he ever got the name Whispering Bill Anderson. Well, the name was actually given to me by a little comedian that played on my television show named Don Bowman for years. And I guess naturally I'm either blessed or cursed, I don't know which, with kind of a soft voice. And a lot of the songs that I've done over the years that I've had success with, where I would sing a little bit and talk a little bit, and I just kind of have a quiet voice. And Don Bowman just hung the whispering bill thing on me, and it caught on. And I tell you what, in the beginning, I was a little self-conscious about it. I thought, well, they're making fun of me, you know? And then I came to realize Bill Anderson is a very common name. You can look in any phone book in America. You'll find a Bill or Billy or a William Anderson. But the whispering Bill gave me a little unique handle, and I didn't have to change my name to Conway Twitty. There seem to have been so many chapters for you. I'm thinking about your career as a broadcaster, as a singer, as a songwriter, as an actor, a game show host, a talent show host, an interviewer, an author, a fixture at the Grand Ole Opry, it's hard to know where to start. So I thought, let's just start at the beginning. Tell me where you come from and what your life was like as a child. (laughs) All those things you listed, you made me tired. Have I done all of that? You sure have. (laughs) I was born in Columbia, South Carolina. Lived there until I was about eight years old. My mom and dad were both from the state of Georgia, and they wanted to get back a little closer to their home and their parents who were getting on up in years. And so we moved from Columbia, South Carolina, to a little town called Decatur, Georgia, when I was eight years old. I had a very, I think, normal, average kind of childhood. I did all the things most kids my age did. The only thing that was a little different, I guess, was I'd go in my room at night, and uh, instead of playing video games or whatever they do now, I'd take an old guitar down and strum on it a little bit. But I was into sports. I played baseball. I played football in high school. I always loved to write. I was the editor of my school newspaper. I was the editor of the annual my senior year and uh, was a starting pitcher on the baseball team. I actually thought in those days I would grow up to be a baseball player. That's really what I wanted to do. Isn't that what every boy wants to be, (laughs) right? But some funny things happened on my way to the major leagues. (laughs) 
How old were you when you first started playing the guitar, and who gave you your first guitar? <laughs> well, my mom and dad got it for me. I was about nine or ten years old, I guess. And they tell me that I could find the music, as they called it back in those days, the hillbilly music on the radio a long time before I could tie my shoes. The guitar my mom and dad gave me when I was about nine years old, the strings were so far up off the fretboard, nearly killed me trying to push them down. Everybody starts on a cheap guitar. Nobody starts out on a good guitar. But eventually I got a little better one and then a little better one after that. Did you take guitar lessons or are you self-taught? What was it Chet Atkins said? He said, uh, if somebody asked him if he could read music, he said, yes, but not enough to hurt my playing. <laughs> so I took a few lessons, but uh, not enough to hurt my playing. I had a man in the neighborhood where I lived who actually was in a country band and played on television in Atlanta. And I would go to his house a couple of nights every week, and he would show me some chords and things, but I never really took formal lessons. What was the message in your house? What were the values that you grew up with in your house about work ethic, about what really matters? Well, you take my parents, and it's pretty easy to understand. My mother was the daughter, the third child of a, of a Methodist minister. So I grew up with a lot of the church influence in my life, went to Sunday school, went to church. My first music publisher in Nashville made an interesting comment when I first came here. I was 21, 22 years old, he said, Anderson, every song you write sounds like it came right out of the Baptist hymnal. I said, that's because it did, because <laughs> that's the music that influenced me when I was a kid. My dad was in the insurance business, and he started his own agency when I was about uh, nine or 10 years old, and I saw his work ethic. He had to have a work ethic of the highest degree because he had a family to feed. And he left a very secure uh, middle-class paying job, I guess, because he wanted to work for himself. He wanted to go in business and work for himself. And he set such a marvelous example for me, his work ethic and his uh, ability to provide for the family and, uh, and do it through hard work. So you take my mother's influence. His mother didn't work outside the home. She was just a, a homemaker and raised me and my sister, but with her values and then my dad's values, and I hope I absorbed a little bit from each side. Let's go to the University of Georgia. You attended. I went there. You did. You <laughs> I don't did. want to go there Does again. that mean you're a bulldog? Is that what they are? The University Georgia of Georgia Bulldogs. bulldogs. Well, there you go. <laughs> you know <laughs> We'll get down on our knees and bark. <laughs> oh, my God. So you were a journalism major. And I remember earlier in our interview, you said you loved to write. So what were you thinking at that time in your life? Did you want to be a news person? Did you want to write articles in newspapers or on television? Well, I had been doing some journalistic work before I got to Georgia. I worked, as I said, I was the editor of my high school newspaper, and then I worked for a local weekly paper in Decatur outside of Atlanta, and then I was asked to do some sports writing for the Atlanta papers, for the Atlanta Constitution, one of the major newspapers in the South. So I had done that. Sports was mainly what I wrote because of my love for sports. Uh, when I got over to Georgia, to the university, the journalism school was divided into three sequences. You could major in what they call news editorial, you could major in broadcast journalism, or you could major in advertising. Well, I had always been fascinated by microphones and radio and things, so I got into the broadcast end of journalism, 
got a job working on a little radio station close by and just kind of went from there. Well, my background is I spent 25 years on the radio, and so I always like to tell people, you'll love this, I never met a microphone I didn't love, (laughs) okay? So tell me a little bit about your experience in a small market radio station. Well, I started out in Athens, Georgia, which is not a big city by any means, but I really went to small town radio in a little town called Commerce, Georgia, about 18 miles north of Athens. The station in Athens wouldn't let me play enough country music. And so the uh, the manager of the station actually fired me for playing country music. That used to happen show, all the time. But he fired me the nicest way anybody's ever been fired. He got me the job in commerce. He said, I've got a friend that's putting on a new station up there. They're going to play a lot of country music, and I think you'd fit in. And he called the guy, and the man had me up, and I auditioned, and I got hired. And being fired was one of the big breaks I've had in my life. What did you love about radio, Bill? Because I love so many things about it. I love the idea that it's live. It's happening right now. And if you make a mistake, well, it's, you know, it's (laughs) gone in the wind. What did you love about it? I think my favorite thing about it, and it was something that I learned over a period of time. My boss used to tell me, he said, you're not talking to an audience. You're talking to one person. Of course, in Commerce, Georgia, I was lucky if I was talking talking to one person. You were talking to like 11 all at the same time. (laughs) But I learned that one-on-one communication. I would close my eyes there in the control room sometimes and just pretend I was talking to an old friend, you know, and not thinking mass audience or anything. And that has helped me so much in life. It's helped me in becoming whatever it is I have become, learning that, that lesson. Don't think about, you're not singing to all 4,000 people in the Grand Ole Opry House. You just focus on singing to one person, and the rest of them will come in to you. My boss said to me, I want you to reach through the radio and tap somebody on the shoulder. Yeah. And I always kept that as a visual for myself. During college, you started singing, and you were writing songs. You wrote City Lights, and this launched your career. Tell me a little bit about that song, the story <laughs> behind the song City Lights. Well, my dad said many years later, he said, son, I should have known when you wrote that song that you had the imagination to be a songwriter because I wrote it in Commerce, Georgia, where there are no city lights (laughs) or very few city lights. I was working at the radio station and living in the tallest building in town, which was three stories high, little three-story hotel. And I used to love to take my guitar at night and I'd go up on the roof of that hotel. And I'd just sit up there, and nobody was up there, and I'd just sit up there and play and sing to the ninth. There's something about a guitar outdoors that kind of has a unique sound. And one night I was up there looking up at the sky full of stars and down at what few lights there were in Commerce, Georgia. And the next thing I knew, I had written the bright array of city lights as far as I can see. The great white way shines through the night for lonely guys like me. signs and by a broken heart to lose itself in the glow of city light. There was no great white way in commerce, Georgia. <laughs> but you were dreaming. Well, I was. And I've told people over the years when they ask me about songwriting, I said one of the greatest things a songwriter can have 
is empathy, and that is to put yourself in somebody else's place. I was not sitting there looking at the bright array of city lights, but I was picturing somebody who was. You make the move to Nashville, and what a year that was. You get signed to Decca Records, and you start making hits right away. Not many people do that. Well, I don't think there's any doubt, but what my songwriting was the key that opened the doors to being an artist. When I came to Nashville, after City Lights had become the number one record, Ray Price, of course, had the big hit record on it, and I came here, and the doors were open for me at publishing companies because I could go and knock on the door, and I'd say, I'm Bill Anderson from Commerce, Georgia, and before they slammed the door, I'd say, and I wrote a song called City Lights. And Which was number one. <laughs> Come on in, have coffee. And, of course, they want, well, have you written any other songs? And fortunately, I had. As far as being a disciplined writer and writing every day, I don't think I really did that. I kind of wrote when the, the mood struck me. I wrote virtually everything in those days by myself. So it wasn't like I made an appointment to go write a song with a friend and I had to have an idea or something. I would just sit down and start strumming and, and ideas would come. Thank goodness. And when Owen Bradley signed me to record for Decca Records, he said, he said, son, you're not the greatest singer I ever heard, but you sure do write some good songs. And if you'll keep writing good songs, I think we can make some good records together. And that was the jumping off place. Tell me about your song, Still, which was not only a country hit, but a pop crossover hit at a time when that did not happen very often. They used to tell me, Anderson, you couldn't go pop with a mouthful of firecrackers. <laughs> but I did. Yes, you did. I became a teenage idol. Uh, or Ladies idol and gentlemen, teenager. I'm sitting here with a teenage idol. <laughs> Take me back to that. Oh, goodness gracious. I had had a record, my first number one record, called Mama Sang a Song. And Mama sang a song was kind of a true story. I told you my mother was a preacher's daughter, and we grew up going to Sunday school and church and singing the old church hymns. And I wrote a song about that, and it became my first number one record. And it got over into the pop charts a little bit, got into like the 30s and 40s. And Owen Bradley, the great producer, legendary Hall of Fame producer, came to me, and he had the great insight. And he said, Bill, that song was held back a little bit because it was religious in nature. He said, if you can write a song that has the same elements in it, which was a little singing and a little talking, and you can write a love song with that format, he said, I think we can take your career to the next level. And what a stroke of genius that was. And so I had it in my mind that I wanted to write that type of a song. Well, it's not like I just sat down and wrote it. I mean, I had to think about it and massage the idea, and I had gone back to Atlanta and gone to a television station to do an interview where one of my former college girlfriends happened to work, and I saw her when I walked in the door, parked my Cadillac next to her Chevrolet. <laughs> she had jilted me. She had broken my heart in college, and uh, seeing her again, and I came back to Nashville, and couple of nights later, I was just lying in bed thinking about the whole experience. I got up about three o'clock in the morning and went in my den and wrote still. I've lost count of the hours and I've lost track of the days. In fact, I've lost just about everything since you went away. Everything that is except the memories you left me 
And that's one thing that no one can mar. I don't know who you're with. I don't even know where you've gone. My only hope is that someday you might hear this song. And you'll know that I wrote it especially for you. And I love you wherever you are. Still, after all this time, still, you're still on my mind. had no idea when I wrote it that it was going to change my life in all the ways that it did. Tell me about the first time you ever heard yourself on the radio, a song. (laughs) I had a song out as a writer before I had a song out as an artist. And I remember running to the post office in Athens because I knew that this little record company had sent me a copy of this record. And I remember running to the post office and getting that record out of my box and going straight from there to the local radio station and saying, please play this. <laughs> but give me 30 minutes to get back to my dorm room so I can <laughs> I can hear it on the radio. So I left the record up there, and a good friend of mine, Red Helan, a disc jockey in Athens, Georgia, played the first Bill Anderson song that was ever played on the radio, and I heard it. And uh, I thought I was king of the world. There's something about hearing it on the radio that's very different from sitting in the program director's office and playing it for him. Or like you said, you couldn't wait to get home to hear it in your own little apartment or wherever you Well, there's something that says it's really real. It's really happened. It's really authentic when you actually hear it on the radio and know somebody else is listening to it. And it never gets old, does it? It hasn't yet. (laughs) Early in your career, your songs were sung by superstars like Aretha Franklin, like Debbie Reynolds, like Dean Martin, and the list goes on. As a songwriter, what is it like to hear your song being sung by a super talented person? Well, it's a great compliment, number one, because the fact that they would even want to sing the song says that they are staking a part of their life and their career on something that you created. And that's a great compliment. But once you get past that, the fact that you just hear it coming out of that radio speaker or out of that phonograph record player that we had back in those days, th- there's there's hardly any way to describe it. It's like, that's my baby. The hard part is when somebody turns your song down and tells you your kid's ugly. <laughs> that's hard to take. Is there one performance that really stands out in your mind, a recording of one of your songs back at that time in your life that you're most proud of? Oh, I'm proud of all of them, from Ray Price's original record of City Lights right up to James Brown recording Still and Aretha Franklin recording I May Never Get to Heaven. These things are all very special I can't say that there's any one that stands out, but I'll tell you what I appreciate about an artist like an Aretha Franklin, like a James Brown. They did not try to copy me. I tell people all the time, I say, anybody can trace a picture. It takes a real artist to paint one. I 
and what James Brown did and what Aretha Franklin did and Dean Martin did and these people and Debbie Reynolds, they went and they painted their own picture. They took what I had created and then they took it to the next level, took it beyond there as the true artist they are. They didn't try to copy me. I mean, my goodness, can you imagine James Brown trying to copy <laughs> Bill Anderson? He just Whispering took that song. Whispering Bill Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> he just took that song and made it his own. I love you still. You know, a good friend of mine, Coach and Western Scott, beautiful man, brother Bill Anderson, he said this. And Bill told me to dream I had. He said, Brother Brown, he said, go on and tell the world this. I want you to keep on telling them. For anybody that may have this problem, and you feel that you want your loved one back, just keep telling them. I love you. I love you. I love you. And that makes a writer extremely proud that somebody is willing to do that. The awards start coming your way, and the list is so long. So forgive me if I forget one. Songwriter of the Year, six times. Male Vocalist of the Year. Induction into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. Country Music Hall of Fame. You get Lifetime Achievement Awards all over the place. The list goes on and on. Whispering Bill Anderson, where do you keep all of your awards? (laughs) You know, I never got into this business to win awards. That's not what it's about. It's about creating music and doing something that satisfies you deep down in your soul somewhere. The awards are nice. They're the cherry on top of the Sunday, the whipped cream, but they're not the ice cream and the chocolate syrup. I don't mean to belittle them at all. I value everyone. I appreciate everyone, but that's not what I've done this for. When I interviewed Lionel Richie, I asked him the same question. He said, I keep my Grammys in the bathroom to keep me humble. (laughs) Don't you love that answer? I I never thought of that. Maybe that's what I need to try. You decide to step into television and you begin a whole new chapter in this incredible success story. Tell me about that time in your life. I'm talking about One Life to Live, Fandango, You Can Be a Star. What comes to the surface when you think about your work in television? Well, the first thing is I look better on the radio. (laughs) You do not have a face for radio, Bill. Neither do I. I started doing television shows when I was still in high school. Every time I got the chance to appear on a talent show in Atlanta or some kind of a show. You know, one of the first people that I worked in television with, you won't believe this. And it's a long story and we don't have time for it all. But there was a budding young comedian in Atlanta who had a television show and He would call me in occasionally to be on his TV show, and he would call me in to go out and play supermarket grand openings with him and stuff. You might have heard of him. His name was Dick Van Dyke. He gave me some of my first uh, exposure to that type thing early on. So I stuck my face in front of a TV camera when I was 15, 16 years old. Are you a natural-born performer? Were you ever nervous? You know, not nervous from the sense of being nervous, keyed up. Butterflies. Minnie Pearl told me one time, she said, if you ever get to the place where you don't get a few butterflies, then it doesn't mean as much to you as it should. So, yeah, I get the butterflies. I don't get the nerves. And and there's a thin line between the two. What is it like to be on the stage at the Grand Ole Opry? The Grand Ole Opry is 
to a country singer, what Yankee Stadium and Fenway Park are to baseball players, what Hollywood is to an actor or an actress who aspired for that, or Broadway to a stage performer. The Grand Ole Opry is like the top rung on the ladder in the country music business. And getting invited to play there and be a part of it, I'm going to celebrate 60 years as a member of the Grand Ole Opry. I tell people I was four when I went there, but uh, (laughs) actually I was a little older than that. But the Grand Ole Opry has been a very special part of my life, and I hope I have contributed and been special in some way to the Opry. What is the key to being a great performer? You mentioned singing to one person. Is there anything else besides that? Yeah, loving what you do. Loving it and saying, I'd rather be here than anywhere in the world tonight. There may only be 20 people in the audience, but I'd rather be here with those 20 people than to be anywhere else I can think of. I found a little clip in one time, and I'll share this with you because it's been special to me, and I've shared it uh, with a lot of young people over the years. I've spoken at high school graduations and things, and I've, I've quoted this. It said, find something you like doing so much you'd do it for nothing. And then learn to do it so well that they'll pay you, and you've got it made. And that's really the way I feel about performing. I'd do it for nothing. You took a 10-year hiatus from all this. What did you learn during that time in your life? I did not stop everything. I stopped writing. I stopped the creative end of it. And this was in the early 80s. Country music was changing. I had been writing songs and having hits for 25 years or so almost 30 years, and I kind of felt like country music is changing, and I'm not sure I can change with it. And I was having other opportunities. This is when the game shows came along. This is when I got called to go to California, host game shows on national TV, appear as myself on a soap opera, and do these things. So I thought, well, maybe I don't need to write songs right now, even though it had been such an important part of my life. So from the early 80s into the early 90s, I really didn't write many songs. I would still jot down little ideas. I couldn't turn that switch off. If I got an idea and thought, oh, that'd make a good song, I'd jot it down, but I'd kind of file it away. I wouldn't really sit down and do the crafting necessary to turn it into a song. And I went about 10 years like that, and then an amazing thing happened in 1992. Steve Warner, who had uh, become one of the young artists at the Grand Ole Opry, wonderful young man, performer, He had a good recording career going, and he reached back and took an old song of mine that was 32 years old called The Tips of My Fingers. It had already been a hit four times for four other people, for me and Roy Clark and Eddie Arnold and Gene Shepard. And Steve Warner reached back for some reason and recorded that song, and it became a number one hit. And all of a sudden, it opened up my mind. Wait a minute. I'm thinking I can't write songs for today's market. I wrote this one 32 years ago, and it's number one. 
if I could do that 32 years ago, I can do that today. I can still write songs. And it just kind of opened up my mind. And it also geared me into something else because I began to look around at the people who were writing songs at that time because it had changed new players, new songwriters, new publishers. And this new thing called co-writing. Co-writing had become a big thing. When I first came to Nashville, if you didn't write for the same publishing company, you could not co-write with somebody else. If you were a BMI writer and somebody else was an ASCAP writer, you couldn't co-write. But those walls had all come down by the early 90s, and you could co-write with anybody you wanted to co-write with. And I got to thinking, maybe the way to get back into this is to co-write. Find some of these young artists and young singers who are doing it a different way from the way we did it in 1960 and pick their brain, drain their brain dry. (laughs) And the first person who agreed to write with me was a guy named Vince Gill. And Vince was hot as a firecracker at the time. And we wrote two songs together and he recorded both of them. And one of them went to number one in the charts and I said, hey, this co-writing thing is fun. I can't sleep at night. I toss and I turn. I keep losing sight of the sons I've learned. I'm standing at the crossroads with just I didn't think I could do it. I didn't think I could make an appointment and sit down and say, okay, I'm going to write a song from 10 until 12 today, take lunch break and come back and finish it. But I found out I could do that. And above and beyond that, I found out I enjoyed it. It's hard to put down something that you love as much as that, right? Yeah. So many hits in this period of your life. We chose three of them to talk about today. Give it away, George Strait. I went to a writing session with two very talented writers and good friends of mine, Jamie Johnson and Buddy Cannon. And we met in Buddy's office early one morning around, I say early, 10 o'clock. That's early for a songwriter. That's early for a musician. And not a one of us had an idea what we were going to write. You usually try to go to a co-writing session with some kind of an idea. Okay, I'm going to contribute this. Maybe we write my idea. Maybe we write yours. But we've all got something to contribute. We sat there that morning. They looked at me and said, have you got an idea? I said, no. (laughs) Buddy Cannon, have you got an idea? No, not really. Jamie Johnson, how about you? Jamie sat there a minute and he said, well, I'm going through a divorce. I said, anybody going through a divorce that's got a guitar and can't write a country song about it needs to turn in his union card. So Jamie picked up his guitar, and he started strumming, and we got ours, and the next thing you knew, we were writing a song called Give It Away. Just give it away. There ain't nothing in this house worth fighting over. Oh, and we're both tired of fighting. George Strait heard it, recorded it almost immediately. It became a number one hit for him. And in 2007, 
That little song that none of us knew what we were going to write won the song of the year. Two teardrops, Steve Warner. <laughs> I went to Steve, dear friend. We, we became very, very close after his hit of Tips of My Fingers, and we started writing together and hanging out together and, of course, touring together and doing different things. I went to Steve's house one day. I said, Steve, I've got an idea for a song. It's either one of the best things I've ever come up with, one of the most unusual, or you need to call the men in the little white jackets to come get me. I said, the song is about two teardrops having a conversation with each other. And he looked at me like, okay, you finally flipped out and lost your mind, Anderson. Where do we go from here? And then I started reading the lyric to him. I didn't really have a melody that I was happy with, but I had two verses and a chorus of the lyric and I started reading it to him, and his eyes lit up like crazy. And, of course, as a great musician, he took his guitar down and started creating the melody to the song. We had the first two verses in the chorus. The song needed a payoff at the end, and we like to never gotten that payoff written. We knew there was something there to say, and we struggled and struggled with it until we finally came up with it. Oh, the ocean's a little bit tonight two more teardrops somebody cried one of them happy and one of them bluer than blue the tide goes out and the tide comes in and someday there'll be teardrops again released in a moment of pleasure or a moment of pain then they drift on down and ride to the sea again. Two Teardrops was a big hit for Steve. It was nominated for a Grammy. You know, another word for Grammy nomination is Grammy loser. Because <laughs> we didn't win. <laughs> but we went out to California and went to the Grammy Awards and had a good time. And I'm proud of that song. And Steve says until this day, the Two Teardrops is probably... Uh, one of his very favorite songs he's ever been a part of. Brad Paisley, Alison Krauss, Whiskey Lullaby. A double suicide drinking song. They weren't running up and down Music Row in 2000 looking for a double suicide drinking song. John Randall and I wrote that. And John didn't have a whole lot of faith in it in the beginning. He said, we're never going to get this song recorded. And I kept pushing him. I said, John, we need to do a demo on it. We just need a good demonstration record to show to people. And I finally convinced him we needed to do that. And we met at a studio about 10 o'clock one night. And the more we got to fooling around with the demo, the more John really got into it. And we started calling dobro players and fiddle players at midnight <laughs> to come to the studio. And by the time we finished, 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, John was convinced that we had something special. And we showed it to our publishers. And you may not believe this, but the song was put on hold almost immediately, but was never recorded by a group that was pretty popular in those days called the Dixie Chicks. The Dixie Chicks never got around to recording it, but they had it on hold. During that time, Brad Paisley and I were writing together, and he heard the song. A secretary in his office said, have you heard a song called Whiskey Lullaby that Bill and John Randall wrote? And Brad had not, and she had a demo of it in her desk, and she pulled it out and played it. And Brad said, if the Dixie Chicks ever decide not to record that, please let me have it. 
and I did when they kind of imploded, their career kind of went south, and they weren't making records for a while, and I said, Brad, this is yours if you want to do it. He put that bottle to his head and pulled the trigger and finally drank away her memory. Life is short, but this time it was bigger than the strength he had to get up off his knees. We found him with his face down in the with a note that said I love her till I die And when we buried him beneath the willow The angels sang a whiskey lullaby La 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 Brad called me one day and he said I want to ask you a question and I said, well, sure. He said, what would you think if I brought a girl in to sing that second verse on Whiskey Lullaby? I said, well, I never thought of that. Who, who do you have in mind? He said, well, I don't think there's but two people that can do it. He said, either Dolly Parton or Allison Krauss. And I said, well, I love them both. Go for it. thing I knew. They had worked everything out. Allison and Brad recorded for two different labels at the time, but they had worked out a contract deal where they could release it on each of their labels. Allison loved it, went in the studio and did her part and just made the record. And then the fabulous video that Ricky Schroeder, Rick Schroeder, (laughs) he was little Ricky Schroeder. He's Rick Schroeder now. He produced this marvelous video, which really explained the song to people that kind of didn't understand what it was all about. So the combination of, of Brad and Allison and Rick Schroeder turned that into the hit that it was. It was Grammy-nominated, and it became the country song of the year in 2005. I'm looking over your shoulder at some of the many gold records and pictures that you have all over this beautiful home of yours, and thank you very much again for having us. I see a picture over your shoulder of you and Dolly Parton. I've heard of her. <laughs> She's really something, isn't she? I've known Dolly since, I think I met her in 1964 when she first came to Nashville, had short hair, and a friend of mine told me I was looking for a girl to sing some demos, and he said, there's this new girl in town from over in East Tennessee named Dolly Parton. He said, I think I could get her to come out and sing your new demo session. So he did, and she did, and we became instant friends. Of course, her career went in one direction, and mine and another, but we have remained friends down through the years. And this particular picture that you're looking at was taken on stage at the Opry when I was hosting a show one night and she came as my uh, 
my special guest. You're I'm, plus I'm one? proud of the friendship <laughs> with her. Now, you didn't comment on the other picture. Do you know who that is? Is that Patsy Cline? That's Patsy Cline. Yeah. Let's talk about That's that. And you and you look Klein like you're about 10 years old. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was not, it had to be no later than 1962 because right. she was killed in March of 63. Tell me about Patsy. That picture was taken at a at a concert of oh, golly. Where where was that taken? I I really don't remember exactly where that was taken. I've got a marvelous picture of me and Patsy together that was taken at a TV taping one week to the day before she was killed. And it's, Talk to uh, me about being in the room with her, particularly her ability to tell a story in a song. <laughs> she was poo's work. <laughs> I loved her dearly. Jimmy Dean had a great description. He said Patsy was one of the boys, one of the guys. And she was. She was delightful. I loved being around her. She could cuss like a sailor and sing like an angel. <laughs> As we get close to the end of our interview, a couple questions for you. This is a huge body of work, Whispering Bill. What are you most proud of? That I've survived, I guess. That I'm still here. That I still love what I do. That I'm still able to make a living doing what I do, even though this past year and a half or so has been a little rough, you know, not going out on tour, not doing the Opry, not doing things that uh, I've spent the majority of my life doing. It's been tough, but to still be here and still kicking, and the good Lord's blessed me with with the health and uh, with the support from family and friends to uh, to hang on there and still be doing what I started out doing over 60 years ago. I read that you have eight grandchildren. I do. What do they say about your music? <laughs> they try to figure out what I do for a living. <laughs> I've got them ranging all the way from, I think, 26 years old down to 11 years old. And every one of them's uh, their own little individual. My grandson, my oldest Anderson grandson, just graduated from high school. He just capped off his senior year as a basketball player, star center on his high school basketball team. They had a great year. One of them works at the Opryland Hotel. One of them works downtown at the Science Museum. I mean, they're scattered in all different directions. I've got a situation that I have not kept a secret. I've shared this with my fans, and they've been so wonderful. I have a 16-year-old grandson who has fought cancer for 10 years and a 13-year-old granddaughter who is about to be his donor. He is about to undergo a bone marrow transplant. After all of these years, they've given him all the chemotherapy they can give him, and this is hopefully the light at the end of the tunnel. The fact that my granddaughter is going to give the bone marrow to my grandson is very special. Pretty beautiful. Well, we're going to pray for, for this young man. What's his first name? His name is Gabe, Gabe Anderson. All right. He's really Gary William. He's named after me and his other grandfather, and he's a very special young man. There's nothing like a grandchild, a child who's ill. You wish it was you and not them. Yeah. What is the best piece of advice, Bill, that you've ever received in your life? Could you please pass it along to our listeners? Probably I got it from my dad. I talked about my my dad and his work ethic being so important in my life. And I've gotten a lot of good advice from a lot of people down through the years. When I first started playing the guitar around the house and singing, I was not writing my own songs yet. And if I was singing a Hank Williams song, I tried to sound like Hank Williams. If I was singing a Lefty Frizzell song or a Farron Young song, I tried to sound like them. And my dad heard me doing that 
around the house, and I guess he finally enjoyed as much as he could stand <laughs> of hearing me try to sound like other people. And he said, son, why don't you just try sounding like Bill Anderson? Well, I didn't know what he meant at first. How do you sound like somebody that hasn't been invented yet? You know what I'm saying? And yet that advice stuck with me. And as I began to write my own songs and kind of forge my own path, I've been told over the years that you sound like the devil when you sing, but they never told me I sound like anybody else. I've been able to develop my own style. I have a unique style. People either like it or they don't like it. I've understood that. I've accepted that years and years ago. The people who like it really like it. The people that don't like it really don't like it. That's fine. It's my gift, and uh, I share it, and I always will appreciate my dad saying, son, why don't you just try to sound like Bill Anderson? Final question. Fill in the blank. The key to my success in country music has been? Perseverance. Whisper and Bill Anderson, thank you for having us to your beautiful home. Thank you for sharing your story today on Country Music Success Stories. I appreciate your being here, and I've enjoyed the visit. Thank you. Hi, I'm J.C. Don Valeris, your Music City mentor. Bill Anderson was one of the very first artists I ever saw perform on the stage of the Grand Ole Opry, all the way back in 2002 when I attended a show there for the first time. I remember looking up at him and thinking about what a remarkable career he'd had and wondering what kind of words of wisdom he might have for someone like myself just getting started in the music industry. Bill's career as a songwriter has been so successful, crossing over genres, spanning decades, and creating hits with some of the most prolific songwriters music has ever known. But after all those writing sessions and hit songs, how does a person like Bill continue to stay inspired? If you're a songwriter, you know that sometimes it can be hard to keep those ideas flowing, especially if you're picking up a pen or a guitar to write every day. I knew that if I ever had the opportunity to ask Bill about this, I would. And I did. You have written so many of my favorite songs, so many of the world's favorite songs. What keeps you inspired? And where do you find that inspiration? I think life keeps me inspired. I'm a glass half full kind of guy. I look at life like that. I get up in the morning and think, well, what can I do today that maybe I didn't do yesterday? Maybe I've never done before. And inspiration is all around you. It really is. I try to stay really tuned into life. I listen to things people say. I read a lot. I borrow from things I read in books and the newspaper. I try to stay up on current events and things. And if you stay tuned into things and you've got that songwriter's antenna, that little antenna is up there on top of your head going whoop, whoop, whoop all the time. And what somebody else might see in one light, you see it as a song. I look at the whole world like it's a song waiting to be written. Wow. What an amazing concept. Bill talked about having a songwriter's antenna, and he is so right. Once you perfect adjusting that antenna, you start picking up all kinds of thoughts and inspiring ideas. Today, I wanted to talk with you about how you can stay inspired. I know firsthand that working in the music industry can have as many lows as it does highs. And as exciting as it is, sometimes it can also be a little disenchanting. I'm going to let you in on a secret. I've never met anyone working in the music industry who hasn't also felt this a time or two. 
But the good news is there is always a way to ignite that inspiration again. Here is my list of different ways and places that you can find it. Number one, go back to the thing that inspired you in the first place. I think everyone has that aha moment when they heard a certain song or saw an artist perform that made them say, this is what I want to do. I can tell you that mine was when I was five years old. I attended my very first concert to see children's icons Sharon, Lois, and Bram perform. After seeing them take the stage that night, I just knew I wanted to do the exact same thing. So what was your moment? Go back in your memory and find it. Once you do, listen to that song again or watch a live performance on YouTube, and I can almost guarantee that it will spark a little something deep inside of you. Number two, search for new music. It might sound simple, but if you're like me, sometimes all it takes is the discovery of a new artist or a new song to make me want to pick up a pen and write. Next, get tickets to a concert or go see a live band. Honestly, there is nothing that feeds my soul more than a live performance. And having the opportunity to see that music right in front of you does wonders for the soul. Take in a show whenever possible. Number four, this one might sound a little weird, but it has actually worked for me. If you're waiting to feel that tug of inspiration and it's just not happening, force it and start making music even without it. Sometimes all it takes is a little self-motivation to get ourselves back in gear. Sometimes we've just got to fake it till we make it. My last piece of advice for you is to collaborate. I'll tell you a quick story. I was about to jump onto a stage to perform a song with my talented friend and podcast partner, Candy, a couple of years ago. And as we were sitting in the dressing room, I could feel my nerves building and building. I looked over at her, and as always, she looked calm and collected. I told her about my momentary lack of confidence, and immediately she took my hand, and she said, don't worry, you can borrow some of mine. At first, I had no idea what she was talking about. Borrow her confidence? But then it hit me. All I had to do was to lean on her in that moment, and her confidence would rub off on me. And you know what? It did. I copied her cool and collected behavior, and pretty soon, I felt more confident myself. I'm telling you this because sometimes all we need is another person to bring that out in us. Book a co-write and bring some ideas to your session. Even if they aren't the greatest ones you've ever come up with, another person might be able to take something from that and help bring you back to life. And if you're still looking for a little bit more inspiration after this, go back and listen to our other episodes. They are chock full of wisdom, advice, and inspiring words. More wisdom you can use from Music City mentor, J.C. Don Valeris. Inspired by Whispering Bill Anderson, not only a gentleman, but the consummate entertainer and a country music icon. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. We've got more legends to meet and stories to tell. Until next time, this is Candy O'Terry saying thank you for listening to Country Music Success Stories, where the stars welcome us into their homes and they tell us how they made it in Nashville.